Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories. This is going to be a really interesting conversation, but I have to be honest, most of this conversation is just so I can talk with my guest this week about GMs and hellebores, people, because really what I usually like to do throughout the course of the day is talk about GMs and hellebores, so we're going to get there. But my guest this week is Chuck Pavlich from Terra Nova Nursery. Now, for those of you on the gardening consumer side of this, Terra Nova, based up in Oregon, has produced some of the coolest plants, I think, in the last 20 or 30 years. Give us a quick breakdown, Chuck, on, on Terra Nova Nursery, right? Yourself with production and just sort of the, a little brief snippet of, a snippet of history, a, a little bit of history, Chuck, on Terra Nova Nursery. <laughs> a little bit of history. Well, uh, Terra Nova came out of the, actually, passion. That's what Terra Nova first started with was passion. Um, back in 92, two couples decided they were going to start a nursery, kind of like a, you know, a Mickey Rooney, uh, Judy, uh, Judy Garland, no, uh, movie. Let's put it on a show. Um, and so they did. Uh, Ken, one of the owners, is a microbiologist, and Dan uh, was the plants man. And Ken taught himself to do TC in a fish tank. He was on the exterior of the fish tank. He was just working inside of it. He didn't climb in the fish tank. Um, and Dan provided the plant material. And that's actually how it started. And from there, you know, we hired people to produce the plant material. We initiated it in a lab. And it's just continued from there. It's been quite the ride. Which is pretty interesting, too, as we talk about this, Chuck, because tissue culture has really revolutionized for so many plants in the nursery industry, uh, how they get to market, but yet it's not something that the the general gardening public, you know, we've talked about it a few times here on the podcast, uh, is that aware of. Do, do you think that maybe the, the end gardener is really familiar with like, wow, it really revolutionized some plants that were hard to produce. They were hard in propagation, but tissue culture has just gotten them out there in just such much more effective and productive way. Yeah, I don't know that it's super important to the home consumer that the plants came from tissue culture, and I'm okay with that. Um, I want them to appreciate the beauty that plant brings and the joy and the value that it brings to them. That's what I want them to focus on, not the difficulty that it is for us to initiate that plant and develop the protocols for every plant, even though they can be the same genus and species. We have to develop a separate protocol per plant. So let the consumer love the plant, and uh, we'll deal with all the science stuff on this end. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes we could we could probably do a better job like diving into it because I think there's some plants like I'll give you one as an example. Um, I know you guys have a hellebore series, uh, the North Star series. Yeah. For a long time, when people were buying hellebores, we were buying just like seed strain, right? That was the yeah. the very popular description of hellebores, <laughs> and yet when people would grow them in their garden, it would not be the same. It, you know, the, the picture in the catalog, the picture on the website, even uh, what they would grow yep. would look sort of like that or sometimes not at all like that. So your your hellebore series with North Star, are, are they done through tissue culture? They are done through TC. 
<clears throat> it was a breeding line we had to start. But we had to do something entirely different. We had to reverse a process that we normally do. We actually had to start the seeds in the lab. We didn't sow them and you know, give them a chilling period and have them germinate, then make a selection and put it in the lab. We had to put the seeds in the lab first because hellebores and lots of ranunculaceae, that family they belong to, are difficult in the lab because when you cut them, that injures them and they produce something called phenolics. And it's essentially a, a poison to the plants and eventually that test tube fills up with phenolics and the plants themselves die. So we had to make selections from that seed that germinated in the lab and then we trialed it by wounding it to see the amount of phenolics it produced. When we had seeds that germinated that didn't produce a lot of phenolics and could be replicated in the lab, that's when we grew the plants up, planted them out, flowered them, and we kept track which seed produced what flower. And that's super important to do when you start something like this. And then we made our selections from that numbered seed. Seed number one produced this color flower, and it did well in the lab, and on and on and on. So a totally reverse process by putting it into the lab first without knowing what color it was. And how long is that process, like in a, a real-world timeline? Real-world timeline, um, from doing the hand pollinations to putting the seed in, to growing it, to doing the trials in vitro, planting it out and flowering, um, we're looking at about a four- to five-year process to get it that far. Which is pretty amazing for people to hear, right? But just to get to like that selection stage even, not to get it to the market, but just to get it to the stage to select is four to five yeah. years. Is that something, when that happens in your role in the nursery with uh, a plant like hellebores, do you get excited about it? Is, is there a certain amount of like freedom, right? Because this is a plant that you, you, I think most people that were in the nursery trade, horticulture, plant geeky people, Chuck, have always loved hellebores. I think avid gardeners have loved hellebores too. But they were a little bit, you know, persnickety in the, the seed strain selection and things like that. So when you have that kind of, of we'll call it success, even though that time that it takes, does it get you excited to continue with work on hellebores? Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, we developed this protocol just out of ideas, and we can apply it to much more because all of the ranunculaceae have the same problem. A lot of them are a lot less difficult, but there's so much to explore now in ranunculaceae, and so many more crosses to make impossible by generic hybrids now um, from developing this protocol. So we are stoked about it. We're very pleased with the performance of the new series of hellebores. And one of the reasons that we did it is because when you have the seed strains, and they can be quite homologous in flowering, but there were differences of bloom time and height and performance in all of these. So when we sell to larger groups, uh, not Home Depot or Lowe's, but nurseries that really require uh, a large number, but they want them to flower all at the same time and be virtually programmable, that's how imperative it was to get these into the lab. Hit for, for we've talked a lot about hellebores in the last year, Chuck. It's been pretty remarkable. It's been a big topic and, and just almost serendipitously. So 
Hellebores orientalis was primarily a species that a lot of people had from seed selection over the years. But then there was Helleborus mm-hmm. niger floating out there in the universe with this early bloom time and also upright facing flower as opposed to the more nodding form on orientalis. Where is sort of like your your holy grail, right? And I guess one of the things I don't see on the market right now is maybe like an upward facing double. Like what gets you excited? Like if if you have this like, okay, I'm hand pollinating this today and my hope is it's going to be this. What would that be for you with Hellebore right now? Oh boy, um, uh, I'm going to say, oddly enough, a, a blue hellebore. Mm. Mm. I, and, and you're very. And I'm not sure. Your plum, your North Star, uh, it's plum. What's the rest of the name on the North Star plum hellebore cultivar? Yep, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. It, is, it is. It is North Star plum. Yeah. It is beautiful. Is beautiful. So it, you, you think that kind of genetic is there within hellebores to get towards that like blue tone. Um, I do think that there are, because there are near relatives of hellebores that do come in lilac-y and bluer tones, so I do think it's possible. Um, it's happened in other flowers, you know, and it's not necessarily having the delphindin gene, the blue gene in there that makes it look blue or lavender. It's separate layers of white, red, and clear that reflect the light that make it look blue to lavender. That's what's in roses. Um, things like carnations now have a delphindin gene in them or an eroid gene uh, to make them blue, but in my mind, they're not truly blue-blue. Yeah, so let me throw one out you because the last podcast, we talked about this with Nick McCullough. What about Helleborus philatitis? Where do we land on that, Chuck? Because that's one I think that some hardcore uh, garden designers are starting to, to use a little bit. Is there any kind of work that's being done with like phoetitis and bring some of those characteristics over to them? Um, I think in a really limited amount, we currently aren't working with it. Um, there are, I know there are camps that are using it, but it's difficult to cross um, because hellebores um, originated in several different areas. They often don't like each other and it is possible to make crosses of them plant material, um, have them actually form an embryo, but for one reason or another, the embryo is aborted because mama says, that does not feel like my baby, and aborts that seed. But sometimes, if we are have good timing, we can go in and do an embryo rescue before the plant aborts that little embryo before it fully forms a seed coat and becomes a real seed. And sometimes we've been successful that way. So it's going to take more work embryo rescues, um, but because of the difficulties of phenolic work in that plant, uh, doing embryo rescues are even more difficult with Ranunculaceae than they are other plants. Now, from a practical perspective, as we continue to plant geek out people, as we always should and do, the the challenge, I, I think that also, that some of the success that you've had with Hellebore is getting it to an independent garden center a nursery where the plant is in flower and it looks good and it's sellable and marketable to the consumer. Where is that in the importance 
of how do you balance that versus long-term garden longevity? Obviously, we want both. Um, how, how is that balance for you guys in particular at Terra Nova? Oh, gosh. That rate's really high up there. Um, for us, getting pretty flowers is easy. That's the easy part in our, in our breeding. Um, but getting a plant that's viable to the market quickly and or changing its habit to make it market acceptable is a difficult part. Really fortunately, with the lines that we chose within the lab, we can bring tissue culture out in early June, wean that, grow that through the summer, have it cooled and bulked during the winter, and it will flower the following February, March, and April. So to take off five months out of the process at minimum from the seed strains is really phenomenal. Now, this won't be a full gallon, but it'll be multiple stems with enough foliage cover for a gallon container and a, and a fair flower display, all in a period of about nine to ten months. Not not too shabby. No, compare, especially compared to what, for those of you, you know, that sometimes what we talk about a lot on the podcast, Chuck, is, you know, that balance. You know, does it look great in a garden center, but does it perform well in my garden? You know, the pressure on people like yourself and the people in the nursery industry to produce a plant that does look good in a container. And I think what we have right. with Hellebore is the the best of both worlds success, right? It's it's better for the the commerce, essentially, of the nursery trade, but it's great for gardeners as well, because you do have this really robust, healthy, floriferous plant. That in the past, even for for home gardener usage, you would not be seeing the same level of performance as early in the plant's life. Let's switch gears over to another thing that I was just watching, something that you had, uh, some content that you had been a part of earlier this year, Chuck. And I'm curious if this plant represents a lot of what we're talking about, which is the woodland anemones. That you have a, a new well, the- you have a new introduction of anemone. And some of the older anemone genetics that were out there, uh, Henri Jobert, uh, Tomentosas, just, they were a little unruly, A, and they were a little bit like, I mean, you know, if we were in the UK, Chuck, we'd call them garden thugs, uh, a little bit aggressive, but the genetics that you now have are clearly much more refined. Is that a plant that's sort of a good example of, again, bringing together good container performance, but even more so sometimes good garden performance. It's a great example, actually. Um, I think one of the genius parts of Terra Nova, I'm not patting myself on the back, is that we consider every genera, and we look to see what the faults are within the cultivated varieties, and then we try to fix those faults. And of course, one of the faults in uh, Anemone japonica and the hybrids with Tomatosa is that they run in the garden terribly. If you plant them in the garden uh, in two years ago, and they're going to be across your driveway uh, within about six weeks. So what we did, we started with species, and we employ things like uh, tetraploidy and radiation. Uh, so there's a couple of tricks up our sleeves to help alter them, but Moreover, what we did with especially this was trial every seedling for the amount of area that it covered and how much it ran and when did it run and why did it run. And so we took years to figure out. 
um, which species control what factor within the hybrids of uh, Japonica and Tomatosa and a couple others that we use. And we planted out and planted out and planted out, and then we dug up and we measured the space between each internode where there were eyes, and we absolutely walked away from the ones that had the 10 to 20-inch runners on them, so it would pop up and pop up and pop up. And we made selections based almost purely on the length of the runners beneath the soil prior to ever starting to um, breathe them for flowers and the quantity of flowers and then colors of flowers. Because, again, pretty flowers are actually pretty easy. But it's all the other factors that go into making good plants that are much more difficult. Do you think the average, you know, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but sometimes that's almost too much, the flower talk. Right. I know people like yourself and I were more in the, hey, we need great plants and those great plants we know can carry great flowers, like you're saying. But occasionally that that impulse purchase is then many times with the nursery industry has sometimes been made up of and having that plant look great in a container and flowering. Do you think there are times where we've maybe lost people because of that? Right? We haven't created gardeners necessarily because there was this plant they did buy. It did look pretty in the container, but then they got it home. And for many of the reasons why what we're talking about, the plant just didn't perform well. And then they're disillusioned. Oh, gosh, it's extremely true. I think it's less true now than it was in the past. But uh, everybody here at Terranova is a bloody gardener. And... You know, all the employees get to take home plant material, not the experimental plant material, but all the introduced plant material. And we get feedback. And I'll use the example of our echinaceas as a plant that got drastically improved. We always had, I think, the best colors in the industry, the brightest and the most unusual color combos. But not necessarily did we have the best plant. So a couple of years ago, we actually stopped introducing and we took a hard look at our plants that were, frankly, sometimes just a one-stem wonder, amazing color, huge flower, but didn't perform well in the garden. We can't have this. That's not a Terranova plant. We brought in new species, and again, we made tetraploids of some, and flowers were easy. It was the habit of the plant, the performance of the plant that were really difficult. And our first introduction post-retooling the entire line was the Kismet line of echinaceas. And Kismets are winning awards coast to coast and on different continents. And really justifiably so because their performance is so good. Um, they're not genetically engineered. Fabulous colors. Um, two of our varieties got the two great two-weight awards from Colorado State University where year one they can go, oh yeah, this is the best. And we have a number of plants that won that award. So I think that's a great example of, oh yeah, pretty on the shelf, the garden performance, not so good. Do you find, I'll give you another practical example of this. So I grow a lot of dahlias, a lot of dahlias people, we all know this, like 7,000. So uh, Cafe Olay is a super popular commercial dahlia. Mm -hmm. But the plant itself is rather, rather tragic, Chuck. Uh, it is not exactly a strong grower compared to many other dahlias. 
the the influence of social media i think sometimes we've had this conversation uh alan armitage and i have had this conversation frequently on the podcast that there's this balance of it can be a great tool but it can also lead to things like what you're saying with echinacea that the focus became so flower centric that we lost sight of in the case of cafe la plant performance and do you ever, with the independent garden centers you work with, the the brokered sales maybe that you have, is that something that you're you're trying always to get people to be equally stoked about, right? That it's not just this pretty face, that it's this tremendous, like some of the, the kismet echinacea that you mentioned, the performance difference on those compared to some of the genetics that were out in the market 10, 15 years ago or so is just so much more significant for people to understand. It is. Um, and sometimes it's difficult at our end to make the consumer understand that this is really different. <laughs> because, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a plant breeder or you make um, some kind of appliance. When you say, no, this one's new and really better, <laughs> the consumer goes, uh, uh-huh, yeah, I uh, already have six toasters. Thank you very much. So it's difficult. Um, Golly, we hope that through our social media and our exposure and our trials that are publicized that people understand that we really have an interest in the performance of the plant because we ourselves want to grow this plant and want to pass it on. It's... um, we're never trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the of the gardener just to have a pretty face out there. We understand that consumers get burned and got burned, so we're working hard. Yeah, and well, and, and I think performance is everything. But let me let me lead into this next question with a little bit of an explanation, folks, because I have a lot of gardening friends in the UK. I was just DMing with some of them this morning on some varying subjects, and one of the things that is clearly Chuck, far different when we start talking about uh, the United Kingdom is the weather, although different across the country, is not exactly as radically different as it is across the United States. Um, you're you're in a climate where it's semi-temperate, although in the Lummet Valley, you guys can see some 90s, but just north of you, two and a half hours away, north of Seattle, they have a hard time dealing with 82. They rarely see, but I'm in a market with sometimes last year, 97 days over 90 degrees. And further to my South, we have Texas and then we have New England. So you're given this task of saying, we have to not only breed and introduce these beautiful plants with good performance, but then we need to be able to say, where do they perform? And do they perform? Equally, and you want to hit as many of those boxes and put checks in them as you can regionally across the country. But how challenging is that? Uh, it's such an immense climatic difference as you travel across North America. Uh, it, it really is tough for us. But we literally try our plants in Quebec and Miami and in Delaware, and in Colorado, and California. Uh, in I have a home in Olympia, Washington, so about two and a half hours away from here. Uh, we do go everywhere. Dallas Arboretum, we always go for their trial by fire. 
So we're in about as many climactic places as we can be. Oh, also Minnesota. You know, we do the winter trials for Minnesota. Uh, some things, you know, don't fare well. Like our coleus don't do well in the winter in Minnesota. I don't know why. Um, but we really make an effort to trial everywhere. And something I have to tell you about every trial manager in every place we've ever trialed is they believe that if they, it doesn't do well in their trial, it's not good for anywhere in the U.S. <laughs> Let me tell you. Like, uh, Okay, right. You know, Knockout Roses are a great example of a rose that is just across the board, phenomenal everywhere. And yet, uh, at my home in Olympia, they're like expensive annuals. Uh, the red just craps out on me year after year after year. But it's fine for 99% of the other places. So, yes. It can be bad somewhere and still be a phenomenal place. Phenomenal. Well, and I, I, it's, it's funny you say that because when I was running a large nursery out there, in Oregon, I would travel to all of our independent garden centers, and every one of them believed they had the worst weather in the country somehow, Chuck. And it's that same <laughs> concept, right? It's like, you know, it's, it's, you have to hear the same joke 7,000 times, regardless of where you're at in the country. Somebody goes, well, if you don't like the weather in Kansas City, wait a minute. You know, it's like that kind of thought process that everybody has the worst conditions. So when you're 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 trialing, you're breeding, I think probably the the poster child for this to some degree is probably Euchra. Um and the Euchra velosa parentage being so important for like southern warm production in the plant. Can you from your perspective at Terra Nova, can you walk us through that? Because I've explained it many times, but you have been intimately involved in this process of breeding euchra. So could you walk us through, Chuck, where it was and then how euchra velosa played such an important role in expanding where the plant did well? Oh, golly. So really, Terranova's forte um, has been euchra. We're world-renowned for the euchra breeding. And we, of course, didn't invent euchra breeding, but we certainly popularized the hybrids using different species, and because we exploited mutations that were found naturally within plant material, we extended the color range phenomenally. Um, virtually everyone else's euchra um, breeding is based on ours, with the exception of Primrose Path in Pennsylvania. We agreed years ago not to use each other's hybrids in our own work, and we both kept to that really, really well. But um, the purple gene is only found in the Heuchera velosa, and we exploited that. And recent mutations that I found actually within our hybrid uh, led to the phenomenal forever purple. With the exterior coating of purple, purple prior was actually in a lower leaf level, and so it was a little bit muted, but I found one mutation where the purple is on the exterior of the petiole and the flower even. Um, velosa has meant the world to heat and humidity tolerance and bringing in color, it does have its own problems that we've worked around, but certainly without Delosa, eh, it would be kind of a dull, dull world. Yeah, and, Recently, and, and, Southern, Com uh, and Southern Comfort was a Terra Nova introduction, and for what, mm -hmm. what feels like probably the better part of 10 years or so, Chuck, it's been sort of uh, the standard, <laughs> yeah, the standard for Euchre in like Southern climates, I'd say. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Oh, Dallas just adores that euchre because 
gets big, gorgeous leaves and loves heat and loves humidity. We you know, have low humidity out here on the West Coast, and so we frequently don't get to see how good our plant material looks until it goes east of the Rockies. Uh, one of our first red hybrids, autumn leaves, uh, we saw at uh, Cultivate, I think it was still OFA back then, in Ohio. And I was walking down one of the aisles, and I saw this phenomenal, big, juicy, red heuchler. I went, holy cat, someone really did a good job on that plant. And I walked over it with hours, but I'd never seen it grow with heat and humidity. Mm. And that's always a treat when you see that they're doing well everywhere else. You have a new introduction in Eucra that I want to believe is called Thunder Something, Chuck, that, that struck me. And I was like, wow, that is a great looking plant. Tell us about that. Thunder Something? Or Lightning. It's one of your newer Eucras. What's the name of it? There, there's a new one that you have that's got like a green veining through it, a little bit with like a bronzy color to it with big flowers. Hmm, that, oh boy. <laughs> We'll both. I'll, I'll remember the name of. I'll remember the name of it at some point, Chuck. Don't worry about it. So you 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 also have mentioned you. There's one of the Eucra species that grows up in Manitoba. In uh, oh yeah, that you've also introduced. Tell us a little bit about where that sort of the need for that in your mind came from to sort of explore some more genetics to expand Eucra a little bit. Yeah, we're always looking for really cool things um, in Cucura and whatever plant we breed. Now, Cucura are only native to North America, period. There's no Asian Cucuras, so it's truly one of our great native plants. And things like Velosa uh, from the south and Macrantha from the west coast. Um, and then into the northern mountains of Mexico, there are new species being discovered still, but we needed to increase our hardiness. That was one complaint we had from, especially the Midwest North, that our plants just weren't going to the winter well. So we started searching, and I found uh, a little known species, uh, and then got an accession from northern Saskatchewan, you know, in bloody, bloody cold country, blistering hot summers, incredible humidity in the summer. But bloody cold winters. And so we started working with this species, and it is not a, a pretty plant at all. Um, it is wimpy, green leafed, with a literal five foot tall flower stem on it that is wind pollinated. And wind pollinated flowers um, evolved because they weren't pretty, so no one's going to come visit and date it. Um, they just let the wind do it. So we had to work with this new species. And we brought up the Northern Exposure series, um, ostensibly for you know, northern climates. One funny thing that we did, and it was almost um, a great accident, is that we sent the Northern Exposure series to the Costa trials in Miami, Florida. Well, guess what? Northern Exposure was phenomenal in Miami, which is unbelievable. Now, a lot of the colors that we use in the northern exposures are based from the Veloso blood, but Veloso was like 16 generations ago, but it still added that extra heat and humidity tolerance from going way north to going way south. So what a great mixture and a great um, breeding success where north and south and east and west all met together and made a beautiful baby. Is it? 
still pretty true on euchros that if we see the little follicle pubescent hair layer on them, that gives us a little bit of an indicator that somewhere floating in there is euchro villosa? Oh, no. Because um, there's a number of hairy species like pubescens um, that you know obviously have the little bit of hair on them. Uh, even glabra here on the West Coast can have hair on it. So it's not always true. A fair indication, but not always true. And pubescence and glabra are really, really minor. I think we have maybe one or two hybrids that have um, glabra in them. Uh, sometimes it's taken for macrantha, but it's actually glabra. So, yeah, um, good bet that if it's got little hairs on them, it's got gelose in it, but not necessarily true. Red lightning. That's what it is, Chuck. Red there lightning. we go. Red that's lightning. What I, that's what I figured you were kidnapped. Red <laughs> lightning. No, that's it. It just it was a quick it was a quick website visit away from red lightning. Uh, let's uh, let's move over to another group that I've been fascinated by, and I think a lot of plants people have. Right? I think this is a uh, uh, my friend Brent Horvath at Intrinsic Perennials. He's worked on them some. Um, in the UK, I was actually just reading out of Christopher Lloyd's book, just because I was always curious to hear his opinion on a couple of plants. Geums. Um, I, I, I think it's a, a plant group that in, in so many ways has this really unique flower, really beautiful, but it has not really got into like a, a mainstream, heavier usage. Tell us a little bit about some of the work you've been doing with geums. Oh gosh, um, geons are uh, a little bit of a, a booger to work with. Uh, there, you can easily make seed on geon, but it's not easy to improve them. So again, we went back to uh, seed catalogs and less Gelido for existing, and we started buying in the oddest species of geons that we could find, and we grew out so many thousands of them and observed them for bloom time and length of bloom and size of the flower and did it hold the flower up vertically or or did it nod and you measured the petioles, the crown count, uh, looked at the summertime foliage and we started working from there. And again, pretty flowers are actually pretty easy, but changing all the other habits in that plant were the difficult things. And we did come up with some really good stuff. Uh, one of the great triumphs is actually our pretty coats peach, which is a phenomenal, dense, plump, huge flowered plant. And we wanted to shorten the overall height of the plant because a lot of the GM species, the coccinias and things, have these towering, wimpy little stems that if you overhead water, they'll lie flat in the garden. And slugs and snails might think they're pretty, but you know, humans will never see them. So pretty close peach, and we started working with that. It just blooms for such a bloody long time. And that's another great thing is we, you know, cross the earlies with the lates, and you get a medium range of flowering time, but then you have to increase the crown count to get those early and lates up. So it actually presents um, more than just a few flowers spotily over a long period of time. It's got to be a great floral show. And people understand that, um, things bloom a little bit in the spring, and then they ramp up, and then they slow down as the heat begins. But we extended that season by some two months. In fact, the Tempo series with the Tempo Rose 
September rose starts blooming in March, and it blooms through June. It takes a short rest in July, but then you've got a great floral display in the fall also. That one is such a great re-bloomer. GM Tempo Rose is what I was going to force you to send me a flat of, Chuck, because I'm staring at it as we speak. (laughs) And let's walk through this because I think this is something, if GMs had developed a reputation, it was for, uh, in in places in New England and some more moderate climates, you saw pretty good performance out of them. But when it started to get a little bit up in temperature through the summer, as you mentioned, the plant would look a little bit rougher. And again, granted, do all plants have to look their peak all year, people? No. Do you look your peak all year, people? No. So give plants a break occasionally. <laughs> but GMs were one in some of the the very, um, you know, totally tangerine was probably the one that had the most um, market distribution uh, for the previous oh, sure. hundred years. Um, where do GMs like Tempo Rose, do you think, fit in a, a warmer you know, Mid-South, Midwestern part of the United States for gardening? Ooh, um, they're going to fit quite well. <clears throat> we did look at um, increasing, we, we, we brought in species that were from warmer climates and more humid climates, and we worked with those also. They are some of the homeliest of all species, I will, I will say, the ones that come from warmer climates. But we need to put that in to get good stuff out. Again, pretty flowers are easy, but changing all the other things that sometimes people don't see with their eyes, but it's necessary to build it in. And it's not easy to do, but we did it. So, well, I think that's what, kind of- that's what you mentioned with at the beginning of our conversation, Chuck, was the reverse engineering that mm-hmm. we, we love GM flowers, we think they're really interesting, but what are the problems? So when you go and you source the other species, GMs that are out there, that's, that's really awesome to hear. And I think for people, it's enlightening that you're saying, okay, where in the world, literally, do GM species grow that have evolutionarily adapted to potentially deal with heat, to deal with humidity better? And that almost becomes your, your start point in trying to reverse engineer those problems. Is that pretty accurate? Spot on. Spot on, spot on. Yep. Um, we're always looking for the weird, and we you know, we look at plants, I think, differently than, than a lot of people. There are homely things that we use, but they give us so much. And one of my personal success stories here at Terranova was working with the agastiques that we have and bringing in, I was hiking Eastern Oregon in the desert and the desert of Eastern Oregon, if you haven't been there is sagebrush and juniper and uh, not a whole lot of other things, but I was near the border of Idaho and discovered this nice little weed growing in the crack of a rock and it was happy as all get up and it was August and it was 103 degrees and it was blooming its full head off and I keyed it out to be an agastiki. And it was a little bit mm, decumbent and, and certainly not an attractive plant habit. But I figured that if it was happy in Eastern Oregon, as nothing in the world should be, uh, then we could probably use it somehow. The agastiki breeder uh, during that time was Janet Ager, who is brilliant in her breeding and probably should be a guest someday on your show because uh, she really brought the 
genus Heuchera to where it is now. But I brought this agastic to Janet, and she gave me a look like, I can't actually say on the air what her look was, but it was, it ended in you. Um, and so she uh, worked with it, and in about five generations, we got this great plant that, unbeknownst to us, we instilled in this new line a great tolerance to down mildew, phenomenal tolerance to down mildew, which is one of the big problems with agastic. So that dwarfness, great color, and built-in disease tolerance, too, and that's one of the wonderful things about using unknown species is um, finding out their attributes and exploiting those attributes to make what exists better. It, we recently had uh, Karen Perkins on from Garden Visions and Daryl Probst and some of his work with epimediums. We were talking about epimediums as mm-hmm. a family, Chuck. And I, well, I think I think what is so fascinating that maybe for people that I think the podcast hopefully can do is broaden worldview of gardening and plants to, to bring it into the, the tapestry, which is the world of plants and gardening. And then your garden is an individual tapestry. Do you, there's that component of what you just said that I think is so fascinating that here we are in 2020 in a timeline where maybe occasionally we have a little bit of a hubris as a culture and we're still discovering oh, yeah. brand new things that oh, yeah. there's still brand new plants being discovered in habitats as close as 500 miles away from you and as far as 4,000 miles away from you. How closely do you keep your eye on some of that, that, that we are, like in the case of epimediums, they're still discovering um, new species of epimedium in uh, China and other parts of Asia. Is that something Ooh. that you, you, how do you manage that too? Because that, that's sort of the other part of it, right? Is it that same process where you say, okay, this is a group we think is cool. Now you go down the rabbit hole of exploration. Oh boy. <laughs> so yeah, that's my OCD is uh, keeping track of all these things and, and uh, reading about them. I was fortunate enough to get to go to China and go on an exploration expedition rather um, several years ago. We went up to the mountains in Lijiang outside of Dali, China. So we were in Yunnan at, you know, about 14,000 plus feet in the mountains. And did you know there's no air up there at 14,000 plus feet? There's no air. Who knew that? Mm-hmm. And uh, for a boy who's born and raised at virtually sea level, it was quite the adventure, let me tell you. But we saw such cool stuff. And then different forms of known species that, you know, like, oh my God, I could use it to this and this and this. And just seeing things out was, you know, an amazing time. A lot of the stuff still remains in China. We weren't able to get it out, but we'll be able to get seed out and uh, start working with that. But truly, truly, there are still a billion things to discover and to observe. Uh, one of my um, talents, it might be my only talent, I can't sing, I can't dance, but um, I can spot a mutation uh, in, in a forest of a billion trees. I don't see all the normal stuff that people see. I see that one little weird thing. So that's probably... Um, an advantage for horticulture is that I don't see uh, all the green trees. I see the one that had nine golden needles on it at about 500 feet away. So, well, and I think that's so weird. that's so important. And you know, when we talk about something um, like epimedium, 
it's even more illustrated because you have a plant that's little known in the the gardening circles, but and it has more of a, an intricate, delicate beauty. I'll 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 ask you this question that I asked of Karen Perkins uh, previously, Chuck. Is the challenge of something like Epimedium that it's just sort of slow, right? But from a production standpoint, getting the the plant to fill out a container and getting it to be relatively floriferous when it's young has been a challenge to date. Is that sort of true in your mind? It's true. But I don't think that breeders have focused in on um, bringing up the crown count within the genera, finding that ugly species that forms a creeping that quickly, and or going into some perhaps bigeneric hybrids with epimedium your close relatives are Barberry and uh, Nandina and Mahonia. So uh, the expansion possibilities are there. A lot of them have the same chromosome count and are next-door neighbors on phylogeny charts. So there's work to do there, kids. Yeah, which which is great, which is awesome, people. That's why we talk about there's this balance, I feel, Chuck, with with gardening and plants, right? There's this analytical and, and good fundamental conversation, especially from, from a gardening perspective, just you know, soil and soil health and things like that. But then there's this wonderment component that is just as engaging, if not more so, once you get past the boring stuff, right? It's learn fundamentals, then you can get creative. Then you can embrace some of the wonderment in it. We're we're talking mm-hmm. we're talking up a medium. Is there something for you that you're working on right now? You don't have to give us top secret information. Everybody in the nursery industry likes to do their reveals of new plants and things like that. But are there things you're working on now in a, a just a, a general genus of things that you're excited about the future? Oh gosh, yeah. Um, again, I would have to. Um, Kill you! I told you. Um, we're working, you know, Silene and Lichnus. Um, I think they've been combined now, but they have different floral parts and different chromosome counts. Um, those are two genera that I think need to be reworked, and we're working with some there. Also, Polymonium. Um, doing some phenomenal breeding work in Polymonium to like to do what we did like to the GM to get an expansion of flower time and heat tolerance and better foliage. And we're making progress. But again, it's not the pretty flowers that take the time. It's all the other habits uh, that contribute to making great plants that take the time. So, yeah, and there's some really weird stuff we're working on that that I won't. um, People would get too bloody excited if I told them and we'd get phone calls. And I'm not worried about other breeders doing the work that we're doing. Because I always have felt that if you and I took a packet of seeds and the, with you know the identical variety, took a packet of seeds, and we were asked to do a breeding project, and we didn't speak to each other for five years, and then saw each other in five years' time, we would have developed totally different plants using starting from the same packet of seeds because we both have a different vision of what a beautiful plant is, and it would be terribly different. We are, of course, copied uh, heavily in Hucra and Echinacea, 
but no one duplicates. They have knockoffs, and some of them are successful, and they occupy a shelf space, and that's the problem with other people's breeding when they breed similar things. It's not that we don't feel that they have a right to breed. It's perfectly legal. But um, when they occupy shelf space for a probable better product, that's where we um, run into a little bit of a problem. Isn't that... You and I would end up with different results. Don't you feel that sometimes, and um, you know, we, we try to keep it real here on the podcast, Chuck, that that is an issue in the nursery industry as a whole, right? We have sometimes oh. inferior redundancy that takes place. And then all oh. that does is confuse the consumer because, you know, my, my, one of my first passions, and you'll get a kick out of this because, you know, you guys are in Oregon and all of these are potentially grown there, Acer Palmatum. And at some point you just go like, okay, another Acer Palmatum dissectum red leaf? Really? 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 <laughs> like, is it an improvement? Are we just naming it for the sake of having our own in the family? Um, how is how do you communicate that? Because like you you just did a nice job delicately and politically talking to it, but how do you interplay with other breeders, not just across North America, right? But even across the world on this subject sometimes, because I don't know if everybody is keeping a, a big picture view of the fact that it just sometimes confuses the consumer. It's really not helping the overall marketplace. Yeah, it is tough. Um, so we have over 70 licensees around the world. Some of them are huge nurseries and some are other small nurseries. And, and that's actually how my department is funded is by royalty income. Um, I'm the royalty division. Um, but I do not have a crown. I've asked for one, and apparently there's not one in the supply closet. So, dang it! I'll send you. Uh, we, I'll send you a very cheap paper <laughs> crown. You'll send me a flat of GM <laughs> uptempo rose. Everybody will be happy. <laughs> yeah, if yours says Burger King on it, not so happy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we do a dance every year when we go to Europe. Um, we usually travel twice a year to Europe, once in January to go to the IPM show in Essen, Germany, and then we go for flower trials. And sometimes we make separate um, uh, travels over there. But we have licensees that have taken on other people's breeding. And it can be difficult. We um, are appreciative of every bit of money that uh, comes our way from our licensees. And we try to guide them as well as we can, especially if they are the ones producing the tissue culture. Um, something we don't really love is that they're using the protocols we've developed on others' cucura work or echinacea work, and we've done the work, and the others are just getting the royalty income. So we, we dislike that. Um, at this point, there is uh, an explosion of cucura and echinacea work being done all over the world and it's becoming a very, very crowded market. And what's happening is that the royalty earnings are going down because people are cutting their royalties and forcing us to do the same. Um, uh, some of our licensees you know, are complaining, well, they charge a penny less. And truly, a penny per plant is a, a good enough reason for someone to drop um, a plant based upon just a penny. 
let me let me pause you let me pause you real quick chuck because i want to slow it down for folks let me just give a a a 30 second explanation on exactly where chuck is talking about so chuck is and and what terra nova is doing is essentially the research and development that would be similar to like a patent in the the world of tech right so they're spending all of the r&d time then they have growers who pay for those genetics of the plants that that research and development has generated. But then there are other people who pop up on the market who emulate some of the research and development that Chuck and the team at Terra Nova have done. And then they offer it at a cheaper, as Chuck was just saying, one penny less price than they are. And it starts to, I would imagine, Chuck, just continue where you were, to almost commoditize all of this work that you guys started and really put the most time into. And it's like you gave everybody else like a cheat code that they were able to skip ahead and not put that time in. Spot on. It's the open source programming. Yeah, um, you could take virtually any two of our hucleras, cross them, sow the seeds, and you get pretty plants. one of the best things that we've done, especially with the hugo breeding, is breed it up to the point of inbred depression. And it takes up to that breeding line to bring out those recessive colors, those phenomenal colors we have. Those are all recessive. But just like um, dog breeding and cat breeding, if you have too many inbred lines, then in dogs you get hip dysplasia and you get problems where they're more susceptible to disease. And that's where our competitive breeders have stepped over the line. We frequently um, get emails to the nursery. I generally answer all the consumer emails when people have problems or concerns. And I, I love getting the emails that your plant, blah, 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 there did corn in my garden. And why was it introduced? And I gently have to tell them, well, blah, 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 actually isn't from us. <laughs> it's from another breeder. And I'm sorry you're having that problem. Here's a good substitute. Mm. So. Mm. Yeah, that, and I think that's the challenge, right? It, it's like again, that's why we we try to have these very like lengthy, long form conversations because you know for for the person who's at the end of the supply chain, right? The consumer who sees the plant and brings it home to their garden, that we don't know some of this mechanic, and I don't know if everybody always understands or appreciates sometimes the position that it puts you in. When that happens, is there a fear? Because you mentioned Euchra echinacea, clearly both being in the crosshairs of potentially this happening, that the market just becomes saturated, and and now it's just like oh, yeah. y- you know, there's there's fifty seven of them in every single color tone, and it's like just a bunch of cutesy names, right? This one is floppy, floppy, floppy head, and this one is cafe lay date rate rate mocha latte kind of vibe, and then. How much do you and, and and Dan and the team there, do you try to forecast that, right? There's got to be that perfect time where you do it, you pioneer the ground, but then you get out of it to be able to move on to the next thing to do the same. Oh, good Lord. Um, it's, it's always a difficult proposition. We feel we can still make improvements in, in our two biggies, which are cucurus and echinaceas. Um, we continue to breed. I've taken over the hucleo breeding now, and you know, bringing in new species is super important, but also exploiting the weird things 
but I have found to bring in new foliage shapes, um, new flower colors, better crown count, easier propagation, um, you know, making a ground cover out of a cucular has always been a goal for me. We haven't achieved it yet, but is, is redstone fall, is redstone falls probably the closest that you've seen to that with a little bit more of a trailing habit in Eucarella? Yeah, that's the, actually the, the whole fall series. Um, the idea behind that was actually for ground cover Eucarella. And Eucarella was, of course, a bigenetic hybrid of Eucarella and Tiarella. And they're marvelously sterile and that, that benefits us greatly. So yeah, that's, that's one, one way to, to go there. But, you know, sterility is hard to work with. And uh, so there's other ways to get around that. My point was more that we're just using our imagination to reimagine a genera and what it could be and what it should be to appease the consumer who is now familiar with this plant, but sees it as a front of the border plant and not not necessarily as a, um, a small container plant or a flowering plant or a ground cover or possibly you know a trailer in hucleus. That could be evergreen. The species Labra and Macrantha sometimes trail down five to ten feet. I've been on cliffs uh, up on Mount Rainier and seen incredible curtains of sucrose hanging down that were God knows how old, but many, many years old, decades old, uh, happy growing on the side of the cliff, but literally uh, supported only by stems at the base and then having huge long ropes of gorgeous foliage and wispy little flowers in the spring. So there's more to do, believe me. So that's the second time you've mentioned that you were out hiking and you've come across something. So I have to assume, Chuck, that that's a, a passion for you as well. And do you, do you find inspiration oftentimes in seeing some of those native species out there in the world and seeing some of those examples like you just mentioned with Eucra? Yeah, um, uh, COVID and hanging around the house has been a terrible thing for Chuck. Um, <laughs> I, I I love being out. I, I am in my happy spot when when I'm in the middle of nowhere. Love people. Uh, love big cities also, but nothing makes me feel better than being out in the natural environment. When I was a young child, um, I think it was the second grade. Uh, we were asked to write a Christmas story. And so, you know, everybody wrote about Santa Claus and getting a, a train and a truck and all kinds of things. And my Christmas story was about breeding um, holly, and which caused a parent-teacher conference with my mother. And uh, yeah, my teacher, Mrs. Franklin, said, um, is that boy okay? Don't you guys celebrate Christmas? <laughs> because i you know, wrote about breeding holly, and that, um, in a nutshell, is me. Um, I do have human friends, but you know, <laughs> just away. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's it's. I've always told people um, some of my drive behind creating a lot of the content that we've created over the last two years, and thankfully, people have really responded well to it. Is it's about the plants and the people, but I'm never sure which I want to promote first. You know, Chuck, like, like, like I love the people involved with plants, but I also feel someone needs to speak for the plants occasionally as well. So the content seems to do that equally as well. Let's, let's head into the home stretch here and start to wrap up. 
wanted to pick your brain on this subject. I think everybody who we've had on the podcast in a similar position to yours, I think I have asked this question of. In the last 25 years, big box, retail, Omnipod, low S, has become a major factor in the nursery industry. And I think the way they run their business, no matter if you're, you know, in the nursery industry or if you're just a home gardener, clearly the way they run their business is very different than many of the independent garden centers that people have been more familiar with over the last 50 or 75 years across the country. How has it impacted what you and what Terra Nova Nursery do a little bit in any kind of way? Has it not? What do you feel the the general growing presence of them in the market has done? Oh, golly. Um, by and large, they have dictated through the back door a, a lot of breeding work. Uh, everything must be rack height, and there has to be at least five shelves per rack, which means the plants have to be short. Now, that can be chemically achieved, um, but that is not Terranova's philosophy. Uh, we want the plant to have value for everyone that touches it, from the person that weans the liner, to the grower, to the wholesaler, to the retailers, to the uh, home consumer. So they want things rack height. They want them programmable. They want them to flower 365 days a year, be without a problem, survive drought on the shelf, and they want them essentially for free. So, yeah, they they have changed the face of horticulture. Fortunately, we have done some resistance um, in going that way. We have pitched to the chain stores, but we have a product that is not cheap, nor do we want it to be cheap. And for the most part, launching of the chain stores is a race to the bottom. Um, if they could get you to pay to put your plant in there so you made negative money, they'd be very happy to do that. Yes. Yes. They don't care about all the things that we do to the plant. And, and, and therein lies the challenge, kids. Uh, I know for a lot of people, you know, the philosophy of the nursery trade has been that those big box stores are like the gateway drug into a more maybe sophisticated, elevated way of buying plants. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm more skeptical of that belief system than I think most are, Chuck. You know, I, I don't know if I buy it. I don't really see a lot of evidence of it. But when I think, when you start with plants, this is why the podcast is so pivotal um, in having these conversations. Because as we've had in this conversation with yourself, Chuck, I mean, the the length of time and effort and passion that goes into plants at every level of it is so important, I think, for all of us that love plants, horticulture, gardening. There's a certain sadness that kicks in if you see the plants relegated to this place that doesn't care at all. Like, there's just no, like you said, it's a race to the bottom for for pricing for them, and that's it. Mm-hmm. I, w- I want to ask your opinion on, on a plant here that I know there was a little, there was, uh, I think, Blue Prelude was one cultivar that came out, but I didn't see a lot after that in the Nepeta family. Is there any plant that you've tried to work with in, in your time there at Terra Nova that you guys got into, then you felt 
okay, there's too many in the market. You got into, you felt like, well, I don't know if there's that much more to explore there. Are there any examples? Is that Napa Blue? Because Blue Prelude, I love. I think it's a fantastic plant. Um, anything like that that's happened in the course of your time there? Uh, yeah, we actually launched breeding programs and we felt that we made uh, good progress, but then decided not to launch. Uh, you know, horticulture was just a reflection of fashion. And fashion seems so bloody fast. You know, skirts are short, skirts are long, they've got ruffles and slips and all kinds of things. That um, we dropped something that I sometimes feel that we shouldn't have. Um, a, a great failure of ours was uh, breeding digitalis. Phenomenal plants, great colors, but um, they got dropped because there didn't seem as much interest. Uh, another we thought going to be failure, but was a great success, was our Kinapathia breeding, the Popsicle series and then the Pocos afterwards. We bred those and we couldn't get any traction and then suddenly they caught interest and phenomenal interest now. And in China, uh, you'll see on our uh, website, the new virtual catalog, photos from China where there's, you know, a hundred acres of one variety of Archinopathia because they are phenomenal virtually everywhere in the world. So that's a success story. The Digitalis were um, unfortunate because they were indeed were phenomenal, but you know what? Sometimes it's not the right time for the right plant hmm. in the right country. Is is that a reflection, you think, of, is it just, as you said, just the fashion, the style, the taste? Uh, is is any of it just the economics of it? There, There's a lot of Digitalis out there. Um, I recently had this uh, interaction about daffodils, that I think in many ways daffodils have been relegated to the rubber ducky yellow that in so many spots in across the country are planted on like old homesteads. Ooh. And so when you say daffodil, regardless of what picture we put in front of people visually, their psychology, the brain sees rubber ducky yellow and that's it. Do you think sometimes it's even very deep rooted in the way we've sort of, we have a prejudgment about a particular plant species. Yeah, absolutely spot on. Um, people aren't aware sometimes of actually very frequently that um, readers can do more work, better work and different work, uh, but we have to have an interest and there has to be financial remuneration for our work to continue. This must be great, but it has to be there. Um, you know, we produce a product that is as worthy of um, earning an income from as anything else. You know, we value anything to do with computer or, good God, an app now, or even YouTube personalities earning a million dollars a day. Really, and yet you won't pay, you know, literally four cents for uh, a royalty on a new plant. Like, Oh, boy, our priorities have really swung. Mm. And it's up for us to change. It's uh, no one's fault but our own. I, I think that's a, a great thing to hear you say, Chuck, because often uh, Paul Smith was on the podcast sometime last year, and I think he made a comment that I don't know if everybody around him enjoyed, um, but I did, <laughs> and I thought it was honest that he said, if we had been doing as good of a job as we thought we were, with communicating gardening to people when he would, when he drives around 
and visit cities, he'd see more like true gardens than he does and not just green buxus and houses floating above this boxwood hedging. Um, and I think that is vitally important that we do start having the kind of conversations like you and I have had today that we're, we're, in, we're trying to educate and maybe enlighten a little bit more than what's been done in years past. Um, because sometimes we haven't done a great job communicating uh, about what makes plants special. And we've lost that wonderment and that specialness. And then we are in a race to commoditize the plant as an industry um, so frequently. And we're sort of our own worst enemy at times. Wrap up question here. Um, where do you think for yourself, um, we talked about particular plants that maybe you're interested in. Is there sort of a, we, you talked about style as well in plants. Is there anything that you see as far as like, you know, trending? Uh, we see a lot of like Pete Udolph's work in the landscape design sector. Do you take that? There's more of a naturalistic um, element of landscape and garden design, ornamental grasses. What, what are you seeing from your, your bird's eye view of this that, you know, sort of seems at the moment it's on trend or maybe is going to become on trend? Well, uh, two trends. Um, you know, the houseplant industry is booming now incredibly and anything aeroid is super hot and super expensive. Um, secondarily, I see people, I hear people actually um, voicing that they don't want plants all the same height. They're tired of rack height everything. And they want some height and some color and plants that have a dual purpose. And so we are working that way, uh, making a beautiful plant that is taller, that can be background, that is a phenomenal bee attractor or some other pollinator attractor that is a dual purpose and fills a spot and does a job and has all the green attributes that that rack height plant one that's at Home Depot everywhere, um, also known as the Knock That Road, uh, I walk the cross ties of these old abandoned rails, wondering about the stories they could tell. I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life It's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here all I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way I never want to leave this state of
Everything 